Welcome to Smart Software with Smart Logic, a podcast where we talk about best practices in web and mobile software development with a focus on new and emerging technologies. My name is Justice Epen, and I'm your host today. I'm a developer here at Smart Logic, a Baltimore-based consulting company that has been building custom web and mobile applications since 2005. This season on Smart Software, Season 2, we are focused on the inner workings of Elixir and the inner workings of popular Elixir libraries or Elixir internals. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing my colleague, Eric Ostrich, who's responsible for the wildly successful Elixir MUD Framework X Venture. Eric, could you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your background, Smart Logic, and how you got started with Elixir? So I guess I got started with Elixir after we had a, another coworker that's interested in that was interested in it. We did a small project that should it fail, we could rewrite in Ruby. So it was a two week project. Thank God it succeeded. Yeah, it succeeded well. Uh, still running on some tiny Heroku Dino somewhere, as far as I know, uh, without any intervention from us required. So then that went so well, we started our next big project in Elixir that was handed to me. And then the rest is history. Started learning Ecto, getting excited about pattern matching, all that fun stuff. And then about, what, eight months later after that project started, more curious about OTP stuff and like how to learn that. And yeah, I started a poking at Ranch to see how that was working. Got a something set up and then or got a, a, a listener going which is what, what they call a listener protocol. And then the rest, then like X-Venture spun out of that and Grapevine came out of that and just all kinds of tiny libraries and applications and, and whatnot. I guess our, our company, we've been doing, I think we've only had one Rails new since that first project. And that was mostly because we weren't sure that we should hoist elixir on a possibly another team taking over since we weren't it was that was within the first year at that point uh, it turns out we were still that team so we probably should have just went with elixir but whatever <laughs> i want to before we move on to the other questions we have here i want to hear a little bit about the success that you've had since starting with elixir you've spoken at a number of conferences uh, can you talk a little bit about success of x venture and your speaking career getting started here? That's all from Accenture kind of spun up as a way to learn Elixir internals, right? Like kind of push to places that we, you wouldn't take a, a client application, someone who's paying you consultancy rates. Like you don't want to just go charging into the wild and be like, I hope this works. <laughs> so yeah, it was a, it's a nice little side project that has for better or worse taken over my life. but. <laughs> Yeah, so it's uh, played around with specifically the, the path that led me to speaking was I really wanted to play around with the distri- distribution, like Erlang distribution, and figuring out how hard it was to take an application that was like very set up to be a single node. I was using Elixir registry, which is like in the docs it says this is a single node link, right? So you have to you have to like restructure kind of how you're registering global processes, how you're handling cash and whatnot, like figuring out how hard it was to get a single node, be two nodes, be three nodes, be however mm. many nodes you want. Mm. So that took about an evening, uh, which, is, huh. 
which is pretty great. And then it took a total of a week to have something set up that had a leader node that then spanned across the cluster, etc. Most of that was reading the raft paper and learning how it was doing leader selection and writing a library that did that. But within the first four hours, I had something that was working in some amount. So that was really cool. I think that was... That was the subject of your first yep. ElixirConf talk. Yep. You've since spoken at the Big Elixir. Yeah, the Big Elixir was the same talk. Mm-hmm. And then the most recent one was Lone Star Elixir, right. which was about Prometheus metrics, right. uh, which was kind of the, the next big thing of New Relic went pay only and they like killed their server offering the free version, which is typically good enough for most of our clients. We just want to know when something happens and then like we'll see the email and within the next day or so, whatever the free window was, we would take a look at it and like inspect it and whatnot. We'd looked at Prometheus prior to New Relic doing its thing. And so we decided to swing back around to it. That that looked to be the best one this within the last year or so. Being in Go is pretty nice. I know we're in Elixir, but being able to just download the the download the binary and just like run it is pretty great. It's interesting to me that the, the seasons of the podcast that we're doing sort of mirrors your own experience of learning Elixir. I mean, initially, you got started by working on applications that you had to push into production because they were client work, and then you wanted to learn more, so you dove into the internals yeah. <laughs> of Elixir and OTP in order to build your own libraries and framework. And, and Xventure has become extremely popular. You have like 400-plus stars on uh, GitHub. Can you talk a little bit about Accenture, how you got started writing that library, what it is, what a MUD is for people who don't know? Yeah, so Accenture is a, as I like to say, it's it's not a MUD, it's a massively multiplayer online text game. So it's a it's like World of Warcraft or EverQuest, except if you took all the graphics and then just deleted it. <laughs> <laughs> so everything is described through text. You kind of wander around, you type in commands, and then the game gives you the, the response in terms of an output. So if I like move to a new place, it'll describe that place, tell you where you can go, what's in that room, who else might be in that room, um, whatnot. And so you, you, you kind of go explore and, and the graphics are as strong as your imagination, right? So if you have a, if you have a pretty good imagination, if you like doing Dungeons and Dragons, tabletop stuff, then you can like, this is also a, a probably something you might be interested in. So I, I've always kind of wanted to, to mess around with those tried a, f- a few failed starts in Ruby. I could never figure out the concurrency model, and which is kind of funny. I was playing around with Celluloid at that time, which I have now found out is like it's Erlang hoisted into Ruby. Really? Because <laughs> it has it has supervision trees. It's got actor processes. But it's not Erlang. It's just it's like a port. Of yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, it's, it's a port of the supervision tree and actor model. What is that quote that we like to reference all the time about any like sufficiently complex distributed system so it duplicates all the features of it's, uh, Robert Burdings, one of the creator of Erlang's first rule of programming. Any sufficiently complicated concurrent program in another language contains an ad hoc, informally specified, bug ridden, slow implementation of half of Erlang. Which so, is what celluloid is. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Okay. Yeah, no disrespect to celluloid, of course, but yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I, I still use Ruby every day. Yeah. I love Ruby. It's great. But we're talking about Elixir and we're talking about Xventure. So Xventure is a it's a massively multiplayer online text game. MUDs are multi-user dungeons, yep. uh, which is sort of shorthand for this whole 
genre of text-based games that I, is it fair to say that this is, they're having a renaissance? I would like to say so, given that I'm so heavily involved in it. But yeah, I think I think there's a number of games that are that have been like stagnant for the last ten to fifteen years that are like being rediscovered as like the people who played these in the nineties in college, like their kids are now grown up and they have free time again. So they're, they're starting to be more re like reinvolved in, in the games that they're playing. So yeah, I think there's a, a decent amount of revival in the, in the, the space. So yeah. Very cool. Now take me through the story of X venture from the top, uh, maybe focusing on the biggest hurdles that you had to overcome as you were getting started and then once it was in production just tell me about the genesis of this and the difficulties that you faced yes so x venture started i was at a barnes and noble i think i had pd time so i was like oh just go out and work at a cafe or something Mm -hmm. and so i was figuring out how ranch the ranch's cowboys tcp acceptor Mm -hmm. so figuring out how they, they they're called protocols how when a new when a new connection comes in, Ranch spins up a separate process that runs your module. It's like figuring out how that starts, which is actually you need to start it as a special process that then kicks into a Gen server, which is a little wonky. So I did a blog post on that, and then I was like, "Oh, this is this is a a mud server almost." Like oh, I've always kind of been interested in that. Like keep going for the next week or so. So you built a thing and that yep. inspired. Okay. Yep, and then so. After that, it was it turned into like adding simple logins, so character users became a thing. And then, did you use any libraries for authentication at this point? Or did you no, it no, it's it's it was all through Telnet at this point, so it's wildly insecure. Um, <laughs> Still, <laughs> not anymore. Okay, but at that point, it was. Yeah. okay. Sending your passwords through clear text on Telnet is is like the the norm. Yeah, for better or worse. So I'm a total idiot. What is Telnet? So Telnet is the thing that existed before SSH. Almost exactly what you type is sent over the wire, no compression. Well, yeah, no compression, no encryption, no nothing. What you type, everyone sees. So this was an, an internet protocol prior to SSH. Yeah, okay. up, up until sometime in the mid-90s, I think. And these things never go, like once they're made, they never go away, right? Because it's just a way, it's a, uh, a protocol of communication. Yep. Okay. And then so you create this TCP connector, uh, you have like an echo server built, you've got new clients, logins, then you start building game features. What does that look like? So I think it started out as just being able to see who was online. So figuring out like the Elixir registry to when you sign in, it registers your your like player process into the registry. So that when I do type who, you can see who else is like, you, you pull the whole list, like, remove yourself from it and then display it. So every user has their own process. Yep. And then you've got like game features, like that, you know you're able to move. Yep. How how do those work? So that was the I guess the next thing was probably doing the movement. So that required a world to move in. So I had a, a world supervisor that supervised zones, and the zones are like a city type of thing. It's like it's a, a a wide area in terms of game space, and then under that it hosts all of the rooms inside that zone as well as any NPCs, so non-player characters. Again, I'm a complete idiot. I don't know anything. Uh, what, what do you mean by supervisor? What is what is a supervisor in Elixir? So this is the Erlang supervisor. So mm-hmm. it's, it's how everything is, every process, typically every process is underneath the Erlang supervision tree. So when your application boots, it has 
an application controller, which starts your main application supervisor, which then spins out all of its all of the supervisors under it. So that if you have a Phoenix application that runs underneath your Erlang application, that is then there's an endpoint, there's a the Phoenix pub sub, all that stuff is hanging underneath the Phoenix app. And then Ecto has its own supervisor. So the, what the supervisor does is notice when a process dies and it has a restart rules to it. So like if one process dies, it may just restart that process. If one process dies, it may restart all of them. So how did you, as you're beginning to architect this and you're coming from a Rails background where you don't have to think about that at all, how did you think about what are the questions that you ask yourself when you're deciding, you know, do I spin up a new process to do this? Where does it live in the supervision tree? What kind of questions do you ask yourself and how do you decide when is the right time to spin up a new process? Is it always the right time? Like, what? <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's something that will change throughout your life as a, an elixirist. I think at that, that point, it was everything should be a process, like processes for as much as I possibly can, send mm-hmm. messages around. That's slowly changed throughout my career as an, as an Elixir developer. It's kind of whatever feels right is probably right. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like a really loose, word. <laughs> a loose but, rule. But. And I guess I'm just thinking like from my perspective, as someone who's a lot more of a novice than you, I am never thinking about like, oh, I should spend a process for this unless it's something that's like a background task. Yep. That, you know, that's clearly, okay, I can do that. It's like a background task for this. Yeah. So, and then- that can get you 95% of the way if you're just doing Phoenix because mm-hmm. like Phoenix can serve the, the stateless rail, like rails, like application without caring about any of the OTP stuff, which is, it's pretty great. So the, the, like when you start wanting a process is like when you want stateful stuff, right? So the TCP connection to the game is very stateful because that cannot drop. Mm-hmm. And if it drops, it's like, it's a new, a new session, like you're logged out. There's no state stateless things in, in in the telnet connection. So like when someone connects, you want to process that is them somehow. So like that's a good time to do one background task is a good time. So like if you're doing emails, the typical thing that you do with like sidekick of sending it through there, that's a good thing to boot out of your Phoenix process. Any kind of, if there's a, a complicated task that needs to happen, that like you can send a message to a gen server, which then kicks off. Maybe it fans out to a bunch of other processes and it kind of bounces around and, and whatnot. Platform text Broadway should help with that as well. For what like is Broadway? Stuff. So Broadway was from, I think, Lone Star Elixirs when it, around that time, at least was when it was announced. I haven't looked too much into it, but it is a way, it's a, uh, a way to do producer-consumer stuff so the gen stage but more managed for you so it it does the supervision trees and what and whatnot for you so you don't have to think too much about it maybe that's something we'll talk to jose about in his episode of season two i want to move on so we've at this point we've talked about you, know, you, you added commands like move and say etc we've talked a little bit about like zones and rooms and the world management uh, I'm sure that you also had some front-end things that you added, but I, I do want to I want to maybe back up a little bit because at some point you started extracting a framework from this application that you were building. What was that like? How did you know when it was time to do that? Tell us about some of the pieces that you've extracted from XVenture and that have become libraries under there. Yeah, so the f- first thing that came out was from ElixirConf talk going multi-node. 
I pulled out the Raft library. So that's called Squabble. So it's a silly name. So it's it, like doesn't matter which which node is the leader, as long as one of them is. So that's the, that's kind of the whole point behind it. So it's simple leader election. There's a callbacks set of stuff for it that if you're picked a leader, you'll get the module called. So you can do whatever you want when that happens. I think that's the only thing that's been pulled directly out of XVenture. There's been a few other things that have been pulled out of then Gossip, now Grapevine. I had an Elixir client for Gossip. What is Grapevine and so, Gossip? Yeah, so so Gossip was a chat network for a bunch of MUDs to span their communication networks across everyone. So I could be playing one game and talk to a friend that's playing another game. Yep. Yeah, so Which it's had like, never been done before. Uh, it has been done before, but it was through, as typical in Mudland up until recently, it's all insecure traffic between, they had, it was called the Intermud Network or the i3 network. There's like a few names for it, but so they had routers. You would connect up to a router and then they would connect between each other. So it's kind of a little mesh network, which is pretty cool, but it was through just standard TCP connections with like known packets being sent forth, back and forth, but there's no encryption on it, which is not good in this day and age. So with Gossip, you've created encrypted... Yeah, so it, it's, it uses uh, secure web sockets, so WSS. So it, it is from your server up to there. It's an encrypted tunnel, and then it's all in the same server, and then it gets blasted out through another encrypted tunnel back to the other server. So... At least between each everyone, it's encrypted. Right. So over the wire, it's encrypted. And how many games are a part of the Gossip Network? Or is it still called Gossip? Or have you changed so, it? So it got rebranded to be called Grapevine. Okay. Which um, is a better name yeah. for this. Yeah. <laughs> so there is a weird story. Gossip started, and then I started Grapevine, which was actually a consumer of Gossip. Mm-hmm. that had a super-powered WebSocket. Which was really cool to do, where you did you update something on Gossip, and then instantly it's on Grapevine through like Phoenix PubSub internally of Grapevine, and then it gets pushed out across the the web socket over to Grapevine, and then it has a little callback that does whatever. So it's redoing a, a synchroni- synchronization mechanism. But anyways, so that was confusing to people, and rightfully so. And then they got merged together. The Grapevine name won out. And now it's all it's just the same app. So Grapevine was like a Xbox Live slash Steam type thing where you could eventually have achievements for the games. You could see each other's profiles and, and have like a single place to feel like who you are and like see where you're playing and whatnot. Mm. It's since also pulled in a web client so you can play these games on Telnet without using Telnet right. or knowing that you're even using Telnet, which right. is pretty cool. What the question was. <laughs> no, uh, so it was about Grapevine, and I think you yeah. answered it. I want to back up pedal a little bit now because we're on our last what, 10 minutes or so, and I want to hear commands or was, was the first feature that you really built as far as game-specific feature in XVenture. I want to know, because I've seen your implementation of commands evolve yep. since you initially built it. It makes heavy use of one of Elixir's core language features, which is pattern matching. Can you talk a little bit about pattern matching and what it is, why it's valuable, why it's kind of an application killer as far as Ruby versus Elixir. Talk about that a little bit. The way that pattern matching works is, uh, at least how I have it set up, I have a newer implementation as well, so I'm able to describe both of them. So the, the V1, which is currently in XVenture now, there's a known list of modules that are 
are a command, right? So each one of those commands has a has a def parse on it with a single argument, I think two now for context. But the main point is there the string that you type in is passed directly into the first argument of these parse functions. And so it's just it's literally pattern matching on the string like move north. Mm. And so like if that matches exactly through the pattern matching, then it, it catches that function and returns a, a tuple that explains what the hell to do into the, the run function down below. So yeah, so it takes your string and then I think it does an enum find across all the commands that it has in the first, the, it's an ordered list roughly, like the, the ones you're more likely to do are at the top kind of in an ordered list and then the rest are just alphabetical. Um, so like movement is number one. Number two is probably global, like communication stuff. And then the rest are, are just down below. So it, it loops across all of them, tries to find one. If it finds one, then it, the, that module will parse itself however it needs it, returns a thing that's like, here's how you run me. After Once it's found one, or if it's found one, it, it runs it. The V2 is a new test library or a new test server that I've been playing around with that is heavily inspired through Phoenix. So there's a command router. So instead of like get post put those matches, it's it's command. And then your the string it's looking for with variables in it, the same like parameter colon matches. That one's actually a regex. So why, why is that preferable to just dynamically loading up all the command modules and searching through them? So the, the reason I went with, I guess, both approaches, the command router specifically, I wanted a way to... The, the first version, everything is just under def run. Mm-hmm. And then like whatever the parse thing was with them and then state. And that feels sloppy, I guess, as it's gotten as big as it is. Cause everything is, is just def run, like this thing, def run, this thing. And like pattern matches like 12 times in the same module, which yeah. is its own problem. But this way, the V2, the command router, I wanted it so that you could, you would say it looks a lot more like what a controller in Phoenix would be. So it's like the index, for example, would be like base. So it'd be, if you just type in help, it'll call the module help.base. If you just type, if you want a specific topic, it'll call help.topic with whatever the, the parse parameters are. It feels more clean, I guess. It's definitely easier to understand from a yeah. legibility standpoint. Yep. Okay, now we are on our last set of questions here. I want to know about what features of OTP you've got you've gotten to integrate into XVenture, into the, all the libraries surrounding XVenture. Talk about uh, what OTP features you've used and what you use them for. So I guess the we've already talked about distributed Erlang. So like kind of before that, I'd, I'd done caching. So that's the uh, Erlang term storage, ETS. So figuring that out, figuring how uh, you can insert, look up, kind of do easy caching. And then, so you have distributed Erlang enters, they have to figure out uh, process groups. So that's PG2. Mm-hmm. So that's a way that each node can, or I guess e- you, can, you can do process groups locally too. So it's each kind of process says like, oh, I'm part of the the world, like I'm, I'm part of the, the processes that care about world leader selection. How is this distinct from supervision trees? You host a PG2 or there's a single PG2 process. I think at least, yeah, I think there's a single one on each node. And then each process registers that it cares about a specific group. So it's kind of separate from the supervision. So if I'm imagining like a supervisory tree, which is basically a monophyletic tree, 
And then you've got process groups that can span across that. Yep. Okay. Crossing okay. So, up and down. So if you've got like the tree of life, you've got, you know, dogs and cats and two different trees or you know, parts of the tree, you could have pets that spans across. Okay. Yeah, so, so, so that's PG2. Yeah. So PG2. So like as a, if we're going with the pets example, so you have a bunch of pet processes and then on to the, to the side, you might have like a. You've got dogs on one side of the tree and cats on the other. Yeah. And then in the middle, you have like person who cares, like a, a pet owner, right? Mm-hmm. So they would, they would be able to, to say, hey, process groups, tell me all of my pets. Like, I don't mm-hmm. care where they are on the tree, but they have registered themselves to this group that I care about. Mm-hmm. And then you can send messages to all of them. You can, can be used for PubSub. A hierarchy independent grouping yep. of the process. Okay, I got it. Talk about, okay, so we talked a little bit about ETS for caching. We've talked about PG2 for process grouping. We've talked about Phoenix PubSub and some of the uh, Erlang distribution stuff that you've done. What else as far as OTP features? One of the cooler things was um, I played around with Leaks and Yek. Leaks and Yek. Yeah, so it's Lex and Yak are the before Erlang versions of these. So these are a way to write BNF grammar. BNF grammar? Yeah, I think it's Brachisnor form is what that's called. Okay, I have no idea what you're talking about. So. Doesn't matter. Okay, <laughs> so it's just the way it's like a way to, to tokenize a language. I think BNF is for parsing uh, instead of lexing. So there's there's two stages, right? So you lex everything. So when you take a file or a stream of, of characters, and then you you look at each each character, and you say like, what the hell is this? <laughs> and then you like give it a term and like move on. So it just kind of tokenizes everything. And so it turns your just characters into like known things. So like if there's a curly bracket, we'll say like left curly bracket characters, right curly bracket. Is um, this related to the AST or sort of? I don't I, similar concept, but not yeah, related. Yeah, yeah. So this this is turning straight text into an AST. Oh, okay. So there's a lexing and a parsing stage. So leaks is the lexing and yek is the parsing. And what were you using this for? In there's an internal definition language that kind of is loosely HTML as a way of you can tag things as like, this is a person, this is a, an item, this is a room, whatever. It originally started as a way to semantically color things. So like mm-hmm. you would know that this piece of text is a person. This piece of text is, a, is a, an object, whatever. So like on it's the way out... It's based on pattern matching. It's not smart in any way. Yeah. So okay, it, there's no you, like, you would you would manually tag it as this is this is a person this is an item, etc. Later on, there's a way you could you could drop in like the ID for an item, and then it would be, filter out to the tag version of itself with its name. So it, it's a it's a little more complex than the original. So, anyways, the reason I wanted semantic tagging was that it will color the text on the way out through the telnet uh, stream. So, like you can because it's semantically tagged. Then you can say, like, I want all the people names, anything that's tagged as a person, to come out green. Right. And so, like, I like maybe the default, I think the default is blue. Any person is blue. But maybe I can't see blue or I don't like the color blue, whatever. So you can change it to a different color. And so that lets the game easily know that instead of, like, just saying, like, well, if I see the, the ASCII or the, the RGB values, like, zero... 255.0, then I know that that's a person. Got it. So then instead, it's 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 curly player, curly, their name, 
you know, the closed. And you could do even more with this where you could turn those into links that link out to the player. Yep. Okay. And that, that's, that's the other thing, stuff that, that you can type. So like if you, if you type in help, it'll show a bunch of topics that you can do. And then actually you can just click on the topic mm-hmm. because it's wrapped in some, in a command tag. And so the game knows that a command tag is something you can click and knows what to do. Um, why not? So, wow. Well, Eric, that is uh, all of our questions for today and all of our time. I want to give you an opportunity for any plugs or asks for the audience, your social media, where people find you, where people find your libraries, how to get involved with your projects. Go ahead. Sure. So you can find XVenture at exventure.org. Grapevine is at grapevine.haus. So house is the German spelling. All of it's on my GitHub. It's just Ostrich. We'll link that. Yeah, and I'm on Twitter at Eric Ostrich. And this is our first time doing a podcast in person. Yeah. Together. <laughs> Other than the lunch episode, of course. But yeah. Thank you very much, Eric, for your time here. Once again, this has been an episode of Smart Software with Smart Logic Season 2, Elixir Internals. Join us for our next episode for more conversation on Elixir Internals. Thank you all very much. Have a lovely rest of your day. 